Today on Ag News Daily. What we ask our users to do is enter almost like a journal what they did during that day. So by the, uh, by people entering the actions on farm, we can then turn that into uh, more or less a compliance record. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Tech Tuesday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, I did go to that pig show earlier this morning, got done pretty early. There wasn't too many head this wave, but my little sister did get third in her class. So a small victory for us there. Has your day been as good as ours? It has. I got to eat at the machine shed and anybody that's been to Iowa or been to the Des Moines area has probably ate there. It's very um, like country Iowa farm food feeling kind of a place. It's just a cool atmosphere for anybody that has been to Des Moines or is coming to Des Moines or coming to the area. The Iowa machine shed is kind of like a staple place to visit. Well, Delaney, if I ever actually get to come up to Iowa and meet you in person, because it's hard to believe that we still have not done that, I'm going to have to eat there. Yes, absolutely. That would be one of the first places I take you, Ashton. Well, Delaney, I am certainly looking forward to that day, if it ever comes, really hoping it does. But another thing that I have been looking at today is what's going on in the Philippines. And I reported on some of that yesterday, just talking about, you know, supply and demand and what's going on with their price ceilings and whatnot. But ag officials in the Philippines are considering several options to help boost the country's pork supply and stabilize prices as African swine fever continues to pressure the nation's pork supply. USMEF economist Aaron Boren says that includes reducing pork tariff rates. And they were quoted as saying, currently the Philippines has the highest tariffs of any major import market. 30% tariff on imports of pork cuts, and that's within 54,000 ton quota. Anything over that pays a tariff of 40%. She says consumption of pork in the Philippines has dropped, and the U.S. was actually the only major pork supplier to post an increase in pork exports to the Philippines last year. Members of the Agriculture Committee are meeting to find a solution which bore says it could come in the form of lower tariff rates, a larger quota, or a combination of the two. And the committee hopes to have an update and hopefully an answer this month. So just another thing that we're going to have to continue to watch out on and hopefully get some questions answered and see, you know, what solution the Ag Committee comes up with, hopefully, you know, before March. Absolutely, Ashton. Excuse me. Absolutely, Ashton. You are right on the nose there. But I want to take things here to something else to be watching here in the future, and that is stimulus plans. Senate Democrats are pushing ahead with a $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, even as 
about 10 Republican senators are pushing back to scale down this version to get more wide scale bipartisan support. We saw GOP senators meet with President Biden on Monday after releasing details of their $618 billion counterproposal, which would include about $160 billion for vaccines, testings, and other measures to combat the virus, as well as a $12 billion paycheck for nutrition assistance like SNAP programs. Democrats appear appear not to be moving the needle much, though, and are very insistent that we do see a full $1.9 trillion plan put together. And they have control in both the House and the Senate. So I guess at this one, I don't see why they would make any concessions to scale it back if that is what their party would choose to move forward with. Well, Delaney, another thing that we have talked about other than stimulus a lot on this podcast is Impossible Foods and meat alternatives. Earlier today, Impossible Foods said that it would cut the prices of its faux meat patties by 20% at U.S. grocery stores as the plant-based protein maker ramps up production with a larger plan to eventually undercut ground beef prices. Impossible Foods, which is the maker of the plant-based Impossible Burger and other products, you know, coining that impossible title and rival Beyond Meat Incorporated have been the leaders in plant-based alternatives over the past two years as consumers who are growing more worried about their health, environmental impact, and animal welfare look to broaden or shift from traditional protein products such as chicken, pork, and beef. And demand for plant-based meat has also rose during the pandemic after beef and pork producers shut down many plants to curb the spread of COVID-19. California-based Impossible Foods, which has already cut prices for food distributors twice last year, said it would keep lowering prices of their products. The suggested retail prices for Impossible Burgers would drop to about $5.49 in about 12,000 U.S. grocery stores. According to a statement the company made earlier this week, adding that it will introduce similar price cuts at retail stores in Canada, Singapore, and Hong Kong. And I think it's quite interesting that they are wanting to eventually undercut ground beef products or ground beef prices. Um, I think, you know, one big thing when it comes to, you know, those organic or these meat alternatives, um, you know, those kinds of you know, quote unquote, healthier products is that they are a bit more expensive or they tend to be more expensive than traditional products like chicken, pork or beef products. So I just I I find it interesting that they are wanting to eventually, you know, go under those those prices. But I'm, you know, not sure if that's ever really going to happen. I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, a, a meat eater through and through. So it's just, you know, kind of baffles me, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I I think it's going to take a while for it to ever be truly a competitive um, protein alternative, which is good news for agriculture. And then in interim, we should be hoping finding ways to compete on a wider scale as we see more consumers wanting choice at the grocery store. But Ashton, while we're talking about the grocery store and what's coming for agriculture, Secretary Vilsack took his 
time today to testify in front of the Senate Agriculture Committee. And after a few hours during his hearing, the committee officially approved his nomination, clearing it for final Senate floor action. But during his testimony today, he talked about some interesting factors, including the pledge to make climate change and racial justice top priorities for agriculture. Now, I know a lot of folks in agriculture typically tend to think that we're a pretty... um, not we're not a very diverse group we'll put it that way you know we're, there's a lot of people that look similar that um, probably have some similar backgrounds but it sounds like for however he's presenting this secretary vilsack is wanting to do more to diversify agriculture and he said that he's going to help root out discrimination in usda programs and utilize farmers to voluntarily help meet president biden's pledge to make the u.s more carbon neutral of course this is not probably going to be favored very heavily by a lot of folks in ag who we've talked before on the podcast you know ag is really a very small portion of the total carbon footprint There's a lot of other things that need to be done to reduce our carbon footprint, and it feels like ag sometimes gets thrown under the bus um, on that front. But in response to questions about concentration in meatpacking sectors, he suggested that working with the Justice Department to reconstitute a task force to study fair practices in the sector is something that he's going to be looking into there moving forward. So it sounds like he's got a few ideas coming down the pipeline, you know, I think when folks were anticipating his stepping into office, a lot of folks thought that he would do a lot of the same things that he did during the Obama administration. But it sounds like he is, I guess, ready to try some new things during his time in office. You know, Delaney, touching on that point of bringing more diversity into agriculture, I'm interested to see how this new administration and specifically, you know, Secretary Vilsack, how they tackle that, because I I am game for, you know, adding, you know, diversity into this industry. I am just curious to see how they do that and how it's really going to be incorporated, how it's going to happen. Because like you said, you know, we're not a super diverse bunch. And I just, I don't know how it's going to happen. I just, I'm curious to see how that all works. And I'm eager to see their ideas. But in the same vein, going into some more talk about government relations, the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis launched an investigation earlier this week into the spread of COVID-19 at meatpacking plants during the course of the pandemic. The committee sent letters to the country's top meat packers, including JBS, Smithfield Foods, and Tyson Foods, as well as to OSHA, requesting, requesting scores of information on the entities and management of the spread of the coronavirus among meatpacking workers with a response deadline of February 15th. Subcommittee Chairman James Clyburn was quoted as saying in in these letters to these meatpacking plants, public reports indicate that meatpacking companies have refused to take basic precautions to protect their workers, many of whom earn extremely low wages and lack adequate paid leave and have shown a callous disregard for workers' health. These actions appear to have resulted in thousands of meat packing workers getting infected with the virus and hundreds dying. 
Over 56,000 meatpacking workers have contracted COVID-19 since the pandemic started, and at least 277 of those have died. And that's all according to FERN's tracker, FERN standing for Food and Environment Reporting Network. And I looked at this tracker myself, and it's really just kind of unbelievable. A lot of these cases have been, you know, in the Midwest where a lot of these plants are. I mean, there's some down here in Texas in the Panhandle area. I know that's kind of a big meat packing hub as well. But Fern has counted 569 outbreaks at meat packing plants. And those numbers are kind of criticized for being undercounted, given poor data reporting by states and a kind of lack of transparency from meat packing plants. OSHA has also been criticized, you know, since the pandemic really began for failing to follow up on worker complaints about COVID-19 exposure at meat plants and for issuing minimal fines to meat packers after workers got sick or died from the virus. But, you know, these letters are kind of just a call to action from the subcommittee, you know, requesting data requesting information to really evaluate how the meatpacking industry and I guess OSHA as well has, you know, dealt with the coronavirus and kind of tackle that because I believe it was back in April, the uh, Trump administration had said something about, you know, examining pandemic um, related issues among the meatpacking industry. And so, you know, they're really getting to it here. And I'm not sure exactly what kind of information they're going to get from this, if they even get any information at all. I don't know if these companies can, you know, fail to do this and meet that February 15th deadline. But we're just going to have to wait and see if we even get any answers ourselves. I'm sure that this will go public if anything does, you know, anything serious does happen. But Certainly an interesting piece of news here at the beginning of the week. Absolutely, Ashton. And as we are still at the beginning of the week, we have seen markets move here over the past two days, and we've seen some profit taking going on. We've also seen some fundamental factors that are on opposite sides here fighting against each other, uh, one of which here just to lead into the markets for today. We're seeing quite a bit of precipitation down in Brazil and Argentina, which is really delaying harvest. Just as of last Thursday, we're only at 1.9% harvested in Brazil. Usually for this time of year, we're about 10% harvested. So things are starting out very slowly. On the other hand, we have a higher, very strong U.S. dollar, the strongest we've seen here in about two months, which is not supportive for exports. Uh, we've seen wheat and corn futures pull back today. We saw corn futures fall for the first time in seven sessions yesterday. Uh, soybeans also dropped as we see the U.S. dollar run up in strength. Um a six-week high, in fact, not a two-month high, I'm sorry, a six-week high on the U.S. dollar that's been weighing into the marketplace right now and haven't seen a lot of new export sales numbers announced as of this week. All those factors are weighing into the market for today. Ashton, what do you say we take a look? Let's do it. 
and everything pretty much across the grain boards pulled back today as the March corn contract shed six and a quarter cents to close at 543. The May down six and a quarter to close at 542 and a quarter. Soybeans pulling back today, 10 and a half cents in the March contract to end at 1354 and three quarters. The May down 11 and three quarters to close at 1350 and three quarters. Chicago wheat also lower today as the March contract pulled back six and a quarter cents to close at 644 and three quarters. The May shed six cents to close at 645 and three quarters. And in livestock, green across the screen as the February live cattle contract added $1.10 to close at 115.97 and a half. April up 82 and a half cents to close at 122.52. And in feeder cattle today, March contract finishing at 139.12 up $1.20. The April adding $1.17 and a half to close at 142.50. Lean hogs didn't have limit moves today, but did see quite a bit of strength as the February contract added $2 to close at $71.55. The April up to $57 to close at $78.07 and a half. And rounding out our markets with the Class 3 dairy milk futures. February up 28 cents today to close at $15.78. The March up 7 to close at $16.24. Without further ado, Ashton, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for today's interview? Today, we are talking to James Cullis from Livestocked. For today's Tech Tuesday interview, we are talking to James Cullis of Livestocked. James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us about some technology today. No problem. Thanks for having me on. So, James, before we get into what Livestocked is and talking a little bit more about that platform, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more and tell our audience, as well as myself, a little bit more about your background in agriculture? Yeah, uh, I'm James Cullis, uh, originally from Australia. Uh, I started out on a dairy farm, uh, and then we moved into the city as teenagers and then through the first part of my career, and uh, then Sort of after a decade in corporate, I decided I wanted to get back into ag. Uh, so we did so by uh, getting into um, uh, seed stock. So we raised uh, Hereford cattle, my dad and I. Uh, and through that, we decided to start working on some software uh, to meet our own needs. Gotcha. So... I'm, I am guessing this software is, of course, livestocked. And so is the idea behind livestock or did that idea originate, you know, from you yourself needing these kinds of things and not seeing that kind of platform on the market? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess at the time, uh, smartphones were not well that adopted. Uh, so, you know, we had... Uh, we had a desire to move the platform mobile. We wanted to get away from uh, storing all of our data in uh, scale heads, uh, and we thought we'd be able to unlock a bit more intelligence around the farm if everything was connected. Uh, so we started working uh, on it in 2012, 2013, uh, and we, uh, if I remember correctly, launched in 2014 to general public. Gotcha. So you have been here for some time, you know, in the 
software, livestock software industry, which is really interesting because I feel like we're just now seeing a really big push and a really big need, demand, whatever you want to call it for platforms such as Livestocked. So why don't you give us a little bit of a deep dive into what Livestocked does because you're offering a lot of stuff to a lot of different species, a lot of different breeds. It's really encompassing probably anyone and everyone's needs um, on the farm. So why don't you just give us a 10,000 foot view of what the platform is? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Livestock is whole farm recording and it does span multiple breeds. Generally, what we have in common is uh, if it ends up in a plate, then we're looking to manage it. So uh, that covers cropping as well as livestock. Uh, Currently, we're covering uh, uh, swine, cattle, sheep, and goat primarily, but there are some other breeds on there as well. Um, we, uh, uh, we generally have three pillars in the app. It's finance, land and cropping, and livestock. And what we ask our users to do is enter almost like a journal what they did during that day. So by, uh, by people entering the actions on farm, we can then turn that into uh, more or less a compliance record uh, as well as uh, a productivity record. So, you know, when, when we take the information that you've recorded, we can then start looking forward uh, sort of 6, 12, 18 months to see how your farm is going to perform. Here on your website, James, you have the the basic or the business, and the business is the one that actually does you know some of the forecasting. So why don't you tell our audience who might not be looking at your website like I am the difference between the basic and the business? Yeah, so uh, basic is is really for the um, uh, smaller holdings, so sub fifty animals. Uh, you need a place to record your treatment data or, or uh, maybe you have a compliance need in terms of biosecurity. Uh, it will give you your real-time data, uh, but it's not going to get, get into those analytics, as you mentioned. Uh, once we move into business, uh, what, we're, what we're doing is we're taking all of that data that you're entering on a daily basis, and then we're, uh, we're, we're, we're comparing uh, how pastures are performing compared, uh, among one another, another uh, as well as how animal cohorts are comparing among one another. So you're able to get a similar performance profile out of your uh, out of your herd as you would be if you were doing seed stock. Uh, so if anyone's aware of uh, EBVs uh, or EPDs, then we're offering a similar thing with the animals uh, on your property. Um, so the benefit to that is the data set is directly tied to, uh, your profitability and it, it doesn't get impacted by, uh, folks working in, um, a different climate or under different management practices. Uh, so it's a, it's a much more, uh, it's a, it's a much more targeted, uh, analytics platform than, uh, something that is cross herd in terms of. Uh, the pasture management and the pasture uh, forecasting. Uh, we utilize a metric called DSE or dry sheep equivalent. Uh, and what that does is it breaks animals down into the uh, smallest uh, common denominator. And that is a dry ewe. 
Um, and what we're looking for is, uh, depending on your environment, you're going to have a, a stocking capacity that is uh, ideal for that environment. If you go too high, then you're going to flog the pasture and you're not going to get as, as much out of it as you would like. If you go too low, then you're not uh, you're leaving a bit of uh, a bit of production on the table. So the forecasting in terms of pastures is really designed to uh, make sure you're operating at at the optimal level. Gotcha. Well, James, another interesting bit of the livestock platform that I find super interesting is that you support you know, the use of Bluetooth devices. And so you're, you're able to, you know, use that Bluetooth device within the livestock program, you know, like RFID tags. So I just, I think that that's really interesting. So can you just further explain what you guys do with those Bluetooth devices and how you incorporate it into your app? Yeah. Uh, so we currently support the uh, all true test uh, scale heads. Uh, we we support the all flex RFID readers. Um, obviously, that they are working with the uh, USDA 840 tags, the, the, um, the low frequency RFID tags that you will need to uh, cross and uh, have animals cross state lines. Uh, but we more see the benefit to these tags as productivity, right? So if you have uh, 100, 200, 300, or even getting into thousands, uh, the ability for us to uh, process hundreds of head in a day is, is much easier once we incorporate RFID and electronic. Um, and the way we have integrated it is uh, the devices work directly with the app. Uh, so uh, we've got two main modules that are key to it. One is called Birth Flow where you can literally uh, tag the calf out in the paddock and it's going to create an animal record against that calf. Uh, and the other one is called yard flow, which is, uh, I guess, uh, shoot side recording. So as animals move through the yards, uh, you, you won't need to touch the phone or the tablet. However, you're connected to, uh, to livestock, you won't need to touch that device. Uh, it's it's going to automatically collect the data as it comes through. Uh, and it can get quite complex all the way down to uh, drafting ability and um, uh, uh, dosage calculation for treatments. Uh, so it, it's a way for producers to capture a lot of information without having the manual burden. Gotcha. Well, James, this is super interesting stuff. I just think it's really interesting how you can incorporate so many different things through through one small platform. But with that being said, there are, you know, lots of platforms, you know, hitting the market similar to Livestock. So what separates Livestock from these other platforms that might do similar things? Um, well, we're a bit, uh, we're operating at a different space. I mean, uh, there are several great products in the market. Uh, what we're really focusing on is supply chain and traceability. So uh, getting back to the RFID component, we also have a global database where we're able to track animals cross, uh, cross properties all the way into the packing facility. And then we can actually put a QR uh, label on those, uh, on those labels. So uh, we're kind of operating uh, in a slightly different space, I guess, uh, than than many of them, um, 
I, I, I would like to think that where we have separated ourselves is uh, just our strict focus on ease of entry. Uh, everything, everything that we do is really focused on uh, how do we reduce the number of clicks or the number of interactions that people have to have with their phone? Um, because if we make it too cumbersome, then people just aren't going to do it. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, the market is still developing. There are still a lot of people out there that are not recording information. Uh, I think there's a, a lot to gain in the industry uh, uh, that has to do with biosecurity, has to do with food safety, uh, and it has to do with traceability all the way down to, uh, you know, uh, obviously there's a, a lot of discussion that went around cool. Uh, there are ways that we're looking at to implement uh, 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 raised and pr produced in the USA without falling afoul of uh, where, where cool went wrong. Um, so I think getting, getting into the supply chain path, we're going to, uh, we're, we're going to see a bit more adoption of people more interested in, well, how do I differentiate my product over everyone else? And, and that means we need a broader network, uh, which is what we're building. Well, James, I just have one other question for you before I let you go. And it's how can our audience get into contact with you or get more information about Livestocked? Where can they find you at on the web? Uh, yeah, you can uh, reach me at james.cullis at livestock.com uh, and you can see our website at www.livestock.com. Well, again, James Cullis of Livestock, folks. James, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about the program. No problem. Thanks very much. Thanks again there to James for coming on the podcast. Although he's originally from Australia, he's not based in Australia anymore. He's on the East Coast. So not technically an international interview, but definitely still interesting to hear about how livestock came to be. It certainly is, Ashton. We cover lots of interesting topics just like that one all the time on the podcast. So be sure to check out any past episodes you might have missed at agnewsdaily.com. Ashton with that, should we let the people go? Let's let him go.